I'm uh, Assistant Professor of Anthropology here at Stanford, and it's a great pleasure for me to introduce our speaker today, uh, Professor Martin Stokes. Professor Stokes studied music and social anthropology at Oxford. He has taught at a number of universities, including the Queen's University of Belfast, the University of Chicago, and Oxford University, and he's currently the King Edward Professor of Music at King's College London which is probably the nicest academic title I've ever, the most grandiose academic <laughs> title I've ever heard. Um, he also holds an honorary professorship at the University of Copenhagen, and this fall he's been delivering the block lectures at UC Berkeley, which is why we have the great fortune to have him here today. Martin is a prolific writer. In addition to countless articles, he's authored two books. The first was The Arabesque Debate, Music and Musicians in Modern Turkey in 1992, the second was The Republic of Love, Cultural Intimacy in Turkish Popular Music in 2010, which won the Miriam Prize from the Society of Ethnomusicology. He has also edited a number of volumes on topics including ethnic identity, globalization, minority politics, and music. He has done extensive ethnographic and historical research in Turkey and in Egypt. Because Martin works at the crosshairs of two disciplines, music and anthropology, he's able to explore on the one hand the social and political organization of artistic expression and on the other hand the emotional dispositions constitutive of public culture. To put it otherwise, his work interrogates the politics of aesthetics and the aesthetics of politics. This dual focus is powerfully resonant with our times, particularly in the Middle East, where it's grown increasingly difficult to parse contemporary political life in terms of macro-institutional forms alone, like party affiliations or state-class relationships. New political mobilizations are often explicitly refusing to define themselves in those terms. These sorts of mobilizations are often more easily comprehensible in terms that connect to the style of assembly, the sensibility of participants, the affective and emotional ethos of public gatherings and forums. What seems urgently necessary in this context are analyses that explore the undercurrents of political institutions, which emerge in affective cultural modalities. Not only things like graffiti and protest slogans, but also forms of music, expressions of sentimentality and intimacy. These sorts of cultural modalities are, often appear spontaneous, and for some commentators and observers, that spontaneity suggests that they are devoid of organized political direction. Sometimes these artistic and cultural expressions are viewed as forms of leisure that simply detract or distract from critical political engagement. But it's one of the lasting lessons of, of Professor Stokes's work, ongoing for over two and a half decades, that these aesthetic modalities are a prime site for examining the political, and it's this lesson that many of us, quite late in the day, are only now coming to appreciate. Martin's talk today is called Protest Soundscapes in the Middle East. Please join me in welcoming him to Stanford. Thank you very much, Kabir, for that uh, very kind introduction, and thank you all for inviting me here. This is my first visit to Stanford, and um, I'm looking forward to having a walk around campus this afternoon. It looks very beautiful indeed. I had no idea it was quite so far away from Berkeley. Um, in London, we're very used to our peer institutions all being, we're just squished together in a, in a very dense kind of way. So the, I'm in King's College, which is on the Thames, and we have the LSE about three minutes walk away, and 
SOAS about 10 minutes by bike away and UCL way north about 20 minutes cycling uh, away and so my first question to, to Kabir when he kindly invited me to, to come here was, was how long will it take me to get here by bike <laughs> and there was a kind of blank silence down the phone and I realised I'd said something wrong so I, I then said well I, I, how do I get there by public transport then <laughs> and again there was an even deeper kind of blank silence and um, it was at this point that I began to realise that things are very different over here. Um, but anyway, here I am. I'm delighted to be here, and thanks very much for coming. Um, so how did you come? I, I, I rented a car, and uh, the, the idea of renting a car to get from A to B in one urban area is very alien to Europeans, actually, I have to say. Um, no, it's a, a delight to be here. Um, I've been um, interested, uh, as everybody else has, in the um, events um, in the squares um, over the last uh, extraordinary couple of years. Uh, my interest has been that of a musicologist, an ethnomusicologist, and an anthropologist of music, as, as Kabir mentioned. Um, I've been struck and impressed by the extraordinary uh, vitality um, of the um, um, cultural life uh, on the squares. These really have been kind of creative cauldrons in all sorts of ways. And like many other, I've been fascinated. There is, as you're all aware, a growing um, academic kind of industry, really, which has been devoted to um, engaging with these scenes and sites of, of protest. Um, there is a tremendous amount on the web and there is some really interesting stuff being written, um, as you're all aware. Relatively little, however, about music and relatively little about soundscapes. And I found the music and the soundscapes of the, of the protests and the revolutions um, far from epiphenomenal. I found them, um, um, at least I consider them to be, to be, to be really uh, uh, significant and um, important. My own particular interest has been, as an ethnomusicologist, has been rather um, focused on, on the sonic spaces and the soundscapes of, of the squares and the parks themselves. I think quite a lot has been written, some interesting things have been written about some of the, the broader musical consequences of the revolutions and the protest movements. Um, but what I've been trying to get my, my hands on and what I'll go on to speak about in this, in, in this talk is, is much more focused on these, the squares and the parks as scenes and sites and environments of a particular kind of creativity, a particular kind of sonic creativity, a particular kind of musical creativity. <coughs> there are some challenges for musicologists like myself um, here. Um, th these are difficult scenes, these are difficult soundscapes to, to grasp and to understand. And two things in particular uh, I'm wrestling with and I don't have answers to, but, 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 but these are the, the, the two areas in which I think that we need to, to do some thinking and, and, um, and work of a kind of conceptual order, really. I think one challenge for musicologists is the incredible simplicity of performative means. 
and how this simplicity of performative means is linked to an extraordinary power of, of affect and political effect. So something as simple as the ubiquitous Eshab, uh, Yurid, Escot, and Nizam. Okay, the the kind of um, the kind of banner headline, as it were, of the Arab Spring over the over over all of these last years. From a quote unquote musicological perspective, we're talking about something that is quote unquote simple. Yeah, right. I mean, you can transcribe that. You can transcribe that into musical notation. And at first glance, you don't have an awful lot there. You have a kind of hemistic. Okay, so you have you have a, a slogan that falls into into two parts, and take any of these ubiquitous slogans like Eshab, Yurid, Escot, Escot, and Nizam, or um, Muslim, Masihi, Kolina, Musriin. I mean, any of these ubiquitous um, kind of chants, they usually break down into a kind of um, hemistic um, structure um, in which. The first part and the second part have an interesting complementary relationship from a rhythmic point of view. So, Eshab, Yurid, Eskat, and Nizam. If you, if, you put those together, if you put those together, if you superimpose those, okay, you end up with an interesting kind of um, 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 interleaving of, of <clears throat> a rhythmic process here. Um, which has clearly got something to do with the, the, the kind of sticky nature um, of, these, of these chants. Hitafat in Arabic, Tezahurat in Turkish, and Shu'ar in, 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 in Persian. Um, so lurking somewhere within the quote-unquote simplicity of these simple kind of performative um, structures is, is something which is cognitively um, powerful um, and engaging and which serves as a, a vehicle um, for a rather more interesting and complex performative uh, process. So when one's watching these circles of people chanting in Tahrir or in Gezi Park or, or, or wherever, um, one notices that a, um, one of these hitafat is, 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 um, um, starts off with a relatively small amount of people, the person leading the chant and ringing the changes is standing in the middle, sometimes the, with a megaphone, sometimes sitting on somebody's shoulder. The circle grows as a kind of, as the, as the sort of affect uh, of the moment grows. The chant slows down, so as, it, as it's kind of gathering affective density, it, it slows down because you've just got to fit more people in. And then gradually it just reaches the crest of a hill and then goes down the other side and it fragments um, into into smaller groups. Um, so there's, an, uh, there's, there's a rich and, and complex performative process um, going on, um, making use of these very quote-unquote simple um, 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 simple um, verbalizations. So this is one thing I think that's, that's an interesting kind of challenge for, for musicologists, is, and ethnomusicologists, is, is to think about how um, something that looks very simple when you transcribe it on, um, on, um, on, on, on paper um, actually turns into a very kind of flexible and, and powerful and affectually engaging and politically effective um, kind of vocalization. Um, us musicologists, I don't think we really have the, the, the tools to um, understand what's all of the things that are going on here, but this seems to me to be a challenge. The other challenge that interests me is how we think musically about crowds 
Um, crowds have been the site of all sorts of um, fantasies in sociology and political theory and history um, as sites of transformation, as um, political vanguards, um, as um, agents of uh, revolutionary process. And connected with this fantasy is a fantasy of the kind of primal vitality um, of, the, of the crowd. Now clearly when we are looking at the crowds in Tahrir or the, the crowds in and around Taksim Square in Gezi Park, um, this, no matter how much we might want to cling on to these, this, this kind of imagery of the revolutionary vanguard and the kind of primal vitality of the crowd, clearly looking at crowds from the point of view of their vocalizations and, the, and, their, um, um, and, the, and the soundscapes of these crowds, we are looking at um, intricately uh, mediated, uh, complex, uh, highly <coughs> fragmented um, spaces. Um, it's, it's not possible, I think, to think about these crowds in terms, or at least the soundscapes of these crowds in terms of this kind of primal, uh, primal roar. Musically spe speaking, they're intricate, they're complex, they're highly mediated. There's a lot of stuff going on there, um, a lot of very varied stuff going on there um, that I think we need to know about and we need to think about. Um, um, and, and perhaps I guess what I'm saying here is to think about crowds and to think about the soundscape of crowds in some slightly different ways to what we habitually do. So these are the uh, uh, the two kind of broad challenges that have, have, have struck me as um, somebody interested in music, um, following the scenes in Tahrir and Gezi um, recently. What I thought, I w what, what, what I'm going to do, um, just to keep things um, focused, is, is, is to read a, a short um, section of, of a um, something I've been working on, um, which is more focused on the Gezi Park uh, protests, and it's fairly short and it, it's connecting the soundscapes of the squares and the parks to an ongoing um, interest that I have in questions about sentimentalism um, and nostalgia because I think there have been currents of sentimentalization and nostalgia at play in the soundscapes of Tahrir and Gezi Park as well. So what you'll so what I'm going to do if you'll permit me is just to, to, to read this probably take 30 minutes from now is that about right it could be a 25 minutes from now, I and mean, I think I hope that will leave plenty of time for discussion and uh, comments. Um, so what I can do in just a second is get my PowerPoint up. There we go. The pictures are not terribly closely articulated to the, the talk, they're just um, decoration. Um, so a sentimentalization of place has been at play over the last amazing couple of years in the squares and the parks, the squares and parks of Istanbul, Tehran and Cairo, of London, Athens, Tel Aviv, of Rio, Oakland, Manhattan. This sentimentalization has been around for a, for a long time, one might point out. As Marshall Berman remarks, the Athenian agora, 
has been the scene of a powerful nostalgia in Western political philosophy since about the 4th century BC. The old oligarch, a 5th century BC commentator, and quoting here from Marshall Berman, was fascinated by the Athenian agora's sloppiness. Here, people dress down. Social distance is minimised. One cannot even tell masters from slaves. Athens is the only city with a law forbidding masters to beat their slaves. The old oligarch is amazed that any city can hold together without a strictly visible social hierarchy. He concludes that informally defined spaces like Athens's agora and peaceable practices like shopping and related cultural activities can make people feel comfortable with each other and nourish peaceable bonds between them so that everybody learns both how to rule and how to obey, end quote. This formula, knowing how to rule and how to obey, came to be understood as the formula for democratic citizenship. Athens's agora came to be understood, as Berman puts it, as, I quote again, the ideal place to learn this contradictory behaviour. But it already had its critics, Plato among them. By the time Alexander the Great conquered Athens and other Greek cities in the, th the 330s and the 320s BC, both ideal and practice had more or less disappeared. It was revived in the Enlightenment with Rousseau's depiction of the assembled mass addressed by the sound of the human voice as the foundational scene of democracy, and with the French Revolution's assembling of the masses at the Bastille and the Champ de Mars. The revolution descended into an orgy of violence, as we know. The construction of public squares in which the masses might be assembled, addressed and instructed came to be an adjunct of totalitarianism in Europe and colonial power elsewhere. But a powerful ambiguity hangs over the modern agora these days, as W.J.T. Mitchell observed. Uh, Red Square in Moscow and Tiananmen Square in Beijing might have permitted spectacles of absolutism, but they were also staging grounds for popular protest. The image of the lone man defying the tanks in Tiananmen Square is perhaps one of the most iconic and enduring political images of the late 20th century. The political magic of these places is indeed powerful. However dispersed and deterritorialized and social networked the process of organizing resistance in the Arab Spring might have been, the capital city squares were places people felt, felt compelled to go to join the chanting, the laughter, and the press of bodies, and the sheer exuberance of political participation. The empty space, then, says Mitchell, is haunted, populated by spirits that refuse to rest, collective and individual memories, a perception that leads towards an opposite reading of the empty space, and its transformation into a sign of potentiality, possibility, and plenitude a democracy to come, with the empty public space awaiting a new festival and renewed occupation, a new space of appearance. That's W.J.T. Uh, Mitchell talking about the Occupy movement in uh, Zugotti Park. Now the analysis is astute, but Mitchell's depiction of the parks and squares as empty and by extension silent spaces awaiting occupation is one I find rather hard to square with my particular experience of Istanbul and Cairo. Taksim Square, adjoining Gezi Park where the protests in Istanbul were this summer, 
and Tahrir Square in Cairo are, in truth, as many of you sitting in this room will of course know, exceedingly busy, noisy and energetic spaces. And to an extent, too, they are accidental public spaces, which have assumed the public meanings they do in the protests and revolutions in rather complicated ways. Tahrir was a kind of backyard in Khediva Ismail's Hausmanesque transformation of Cairo in the 1860s and 70s. The area known today as the Azbekia, near the palace, was the centerpiece of these transformations and the Khediva's showpiece. The growth of the Zamalek and suburbs across the Nile resulted in a barracks in Tahrir being cleared to enable access to a bridge and the square, Tahrir Square, thus assuming its geometrically strange but rather central position today. It only became known as Tahrir Square in 1919. Taksim Square in Istanbul, likewise, was dominated by a military barracks for much of the 19th century, whose reconstruction, after it was destroyed in the constitutional crisis of 1909, was the focus of the Gezi Park protest this summer, which I'll talk about in a second. The Ottoman sultans concentrated their westernising city-planning fantasies in the Muslim, not the Christian part of the city, far away on the other side of the Golden Horn. It was only in the modern republic in the 1930s and, and as part of Henri Prost's reconstruction plan that it was brought into a city-wide but never completed project to ring the entire city with parks and public amenities. So both Tahrir and Taksim became central and public locations slowly as a consequence of decisions and plans primarily about other things. Today they are places where buses stop, people meet, lives mingle, paths cross. They are sites of commerce, romance, cosmopolitanism. They are certainly important to the picture of how these Middle Eastern nation-states have wanted to present themselves to the world and to their citizens, but they are also part of many other stories, personal, individual, intimate. It's this sense of the personal, the intimate, the affective on the small scale that I want to capture in the Gezi Park protests, at which I was accidentally, I should say, present. I went there for completely other purposes and found myself um, embroiled, so to speak. Um, it says something, in my view, about... Uh, so this... Uh, yeah. Um, so this attempt to, to, to capture the, the personal, the intimate and the effective on the small scale says something in my view about music and musicians at these protests, um, about their contribution to the soundscape. And it also says something about the sentimentalising of urban space, um, which is my more general um, kind of theme of the moment. But let me quickly remind you what happened. Plans to turn Gezi Park into a shopping mall became known earlier this year. For many Istanbulites, um, it was provocative on many different levels. Gezi Park, as you saw from the slide, is a small sea of green in a heavily built-up area in the heart of Istanbul's formerly European commercial district. It is felt by many to be a secular space, as distant from mosques and minarets as you can be in this sacred city close to one of the Muslim world's first ever pieces of public statuary, close to the Ataturk Cultural Centre, a showpiece for Western music and art, close to the Greek Orthodox Cathedral, and close to Turkey's first ever McDonald's. 
where in the spirit of anthropological inquiry I sampled one of the very first Turkish Big Macs in the winter of 1985. It's a place where protesters can assemble and disperse for the more or less ongoing demonstrations in Taksim Square, which it, it adjoins. This is something we all need to remember, that Taksim Square is, is the site of just more or less constant um, protest. Um, um, but it's also a surprisingly spacious and peaceful place to catch your breath, to meet friends, have picnics, have a glass of tea, catch up on your phone messages and so forth. So the publication of plans to build a neo-Ottoman shopping centre, closely modelled on the old barracks and containing a mosque, was a highly, one might even say calculatedly, provocative act in the context of Turkey's ongoing culture wars, pitting an increasingly authoritarian and religious prime minister, Tayyip Erdogan and his AKP, against liberals and leftists, leftist critics countrywide. It's also worth mentioning that it took place at around the time of debates about the AKP administration's efforts to curb alcohol consumption and public kissing. A sit-in, a response to the developers starting to uproot trees, began in late May. It was violently dispersed by the riot police on the 15th of June, generating further outrage. This sparked mirror protests across the country and the Turkish and Kurdish diaspora in Europe, and weeks of street fighting in and around the Taksim area. The protest movement had no central leadership, sustaining and organising itself largely through social media, and this made the circulation of key images, like this, the famous picture of Jada Sungur, the woman in the red, the so-called woman in the red dress, and of course music, music clips and, and video art, an integral part of the process. There are three elements, actually I'll just show you some of the other images for those of you who are the kind of iconic images of the, of the, of the protest circulating by Facebook and Twitter and email. Of, of course, um, and accompanying a, um, a, a kind of soundtrack as well that I'll, I'll get onto in a, in a second. So there are three musical elements of the Gezi protests that I want to focus on now. The first involves the fashioning of chants, slogans and songs in a way that involved a very high level of wit arcane intertextuality and subcultural reference. The, the, the levels of just sheer kind of subcultural sophistication here were really quite extreme. Perhaps the most celebrated was provoked by Tayyip Erdogan's early reference to the protesters as looters or chapurju. Overnight, those in sympathy with the protest added chapurju to their Facebook names or used it as a humorous term of uh, address. Um, and it was to be seen um, 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 uh, scrawled um, as graffiti uh, over walls um, all around the Taksim area. So a YouTube video grafting images of the protest onto the music of LMFAO's 2011 hit Party Rock Anthem, which includes the chorus line, Every day I'm shuffling, went viral. Okay, so this is... So L LMFAO... O's hit, you'll recall, alluded to and incorporated some of the lyrics of rapper Rick Ross's song, Every Day I'm Hustling, 
but turning its grim tone of ghetto defiance into a joyous celebration of dancing on the streets. So the slogan, Every Day I'm Chapeling, underlined not only the secular subcultural cosmopolitanism of the moment, a kind of cosmopolitanism the, a the AKP stand against, but underlined through its evocation of the LMFAO original, originals signifying the spirit of play, play with language, play with sound, play with popular cultural knowledge at the heart of the protest. Okay, so that's more every day I'm chapeling. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk and then I'm going to play the, some, some YouTube, YouTube um, um, videos um, and then that, that'll be the... That, that'll signal the end and then we can just move into questions and comments. So a second was the beating of pots and pans on apartment balconies across the city. I'm not sure how long this has been a protest technique in Turkey. Some commentators are convinced that it dates back to Ottoman times, but I don't think that there's any evidence for that. It's clearly related to the European practice of Karivari, or so-called rough musicking. I suspect it was probably picked up in Turkey from news covering coverage of the anti-austerity protests in Argentina early in the 2000s. And for those of you who remember that, pots and pans protests were uh, was a very big, um, a very big thing, and it was very pro prominent on the news coverage. So, so my guess is that it was picked up at that moment. And it was also a response to Erdogan's dismissal in conversation with the journalist of the Gezi protests with the Turkish expression tenjere tava, hep aina hava. The same old story, pots and pans. An unfortunate choice of words that once again put a powerful weapon right into the hands of his opponents. Housewives in working class neighbourhoods might not have been able to travel downtown to join in, but they could now make their views known publicly without stirring from their own homes or their own balconies. A prominent protest group, Kardesh Tukuler, filmed themselves singing a newly composed protest song in the neighbourhood streets, self-accompanying with an intricate array of pots, pans, tea glasses, plates, spoons, forks, ashtrays, uh, carrot graters, etc. etc. The song concludes with a traditional sounding classical gazelle or vocal improvisation, some words wittily modified addressing the city. O beloved Istanbul, lying ill-starred, her beauty ruined, what woe, what gas, what grief is this? Everything is raised to the ground, whatever happened to you? Tell me, tell me, I don't want you this way. This too went viral. The pots and pans underlined the idea of the protest as intimate, homely, and improvisation using the materials at hand. It also created a new space of resonance, extending the protest into some of the more gender-segregated traditional parts of the city, sparking dissent and engaging opposition in new places. There was, some of you will recall, a ferocious campaign against the pots and pans at the time. The pro-government press managed to mobilise outrage in some quarters at these noisy balcony protests by reminding readers and viewers that this was exam season and that kids had a right to educational <coughs> success and not be pre prevented by politics. This was, the, uh, this was the way that the issue was, was, was framed. So thirdly, and as far as this uh, talk is concerned, of course there's an awful lot to say here, much more to say here, and I'm going to have to be very limited and, um, and focused, but importantly as far as I'm concerned in this talk, 
Music was an important component of the miniaturized replication of the public sphere by of the public sphere by protesters in Gezi Park itself, which contained medical facilities, schools, advice bureaus, a library, and of course a symphony orchestra, the Gezi Philharmonic. Um, its performances, at least to judge by the YouTube clips, had a rough and ready feel. Circumstances were far from ideal, despite the presence of some of Istanbul's most prestigious music schools in the immediate vicinity, and thus a great many of their students, many of them um, people that I, I know very well, participating in the protests. But the rough and ready musical situation was transformed on the 12th of June by the sudden arrival of German pianist David Martello. He performed at the grand piano throughout the day, playing in the evening portion of this long recital some Beatles songs, some Bach, and some of his own compositions. And while this moment of peace was not to last, an enduring piece of Istanbul folklore had been forged, a protest movement capable of organising a piano recital by an international artist, including the delivery to the park of a grand piano. This was a powerful image for the protesters. If the state would no longer fund progressive and Western music, the dilapidated state of the Ataturk Cultural Centre near the park, an eloquent symbol of official disdain and neglect for the West and progressivism in the arts, the protesters would and could make it happen. If the state would no longer foster a creative and democratic public sphere, preferring a citizenry entirely absorbed by shopping and religion, than the protesters would. At the heart of Erdogan's criticism of the Gedi, Gezi Park protesters was the assertion that this issue was not just about Gezi Park, it was about Istanbul as a whole, and it was about Turkey as a whole. People standing in the way of the Gezi Park plan, in his view, were standing in the way of the development of the city and the country. The criticism was, effectively, one of selfishness, of sentimentalism, of failing to understand the big picture. In this view of things, Gezi Park had no particular privilege, no particular magic, no particular placeness, as it were. It, it had been quite a different place back in the early 19th century, dominated as it was then by the barracks until they burnt down. It had been something else for most of the 20th century, and in the 21st, it would, according to this view of things, be something else again. Why shouldn't it be? Things move on, the world gets richer. People will have less need for public space downtown when they can drive around the city more swiftly and comfortably, have more stuff in their homes to entertain themselves with, have more in their refrigerators to feed themselves with, can fly away for vacations when city life gets too stressful, and can conduct most, if not the entirety, of their social lives on their mobile electronic devices. The places that matter now, in this view of things, the places that generate some kind of emotional investment, some kind of fantasy life, some kind of object cathexis, are domestic space, electronic space, the space of the local airport, and the space of one's car. Downtown, meantime, becomes a mix of museums, corporate headquarters, and a display case for the state's ongoing architectural vanity projects, all to be enjoyed in consumer mode, transiently and at a distance. Protesters in Gezi and elsewhere in the world's squares and the parks recoil not only from the aridity of this vision of human well-being, but also from the violence to others and to the environment that it entails.
There have to be other ways of thinking about urban space, other ways of experiencing it, other ways of inhabiting it politically, they claim. Nostalgia will not do, for the world quite clearly has moved on. Real estate speculation is pushing people around in unaccountable and undemocratic ways. The state's priorities are clearly, almost everywhere, those of facilitating investment and protecting property. These are the anxieties. No wonder the question of how to re-enchant urban place, no matter, no wonder the question of how to re-enchant urban public place is so much on people's minds. And no wonder they are so anxiously attached to the broader question of the decline of the public sphere. For what is going on in the parks, squares and downtown neighbourhoods of cities across the world declares not only new fault lines between states and citizens, but also a struggle over the very concept of a public and its relation to the downtown agora. Is it to be, in the final analysis, simply another way of talking about the market, where people can come together to buy and sell, to pursue their desires in a peaceful fashion as individuals free from government control? Is it to be a redistributive mechanism, ensuring a sense of participation and inclusion? Or is it to be a space of appearance, in Hannah Arendt's terms, a space that not only enables, but provokes the imagination of new ways of living socially, ethically and politically, a place in which decisive transformations might happen? The protests in the squares and parks of the last couple of years in the Middle East and elsewhere have been about many different things, but they have surely indicated a more or less global preoccupation with what the word public might now mean, a highly emotional struggle over its signs and symbols. So, um, Actually, I think I'm, um, I think I'm going to um, stop my script there and now just play the examples that I wanted to play and then hand over to you for uh, comments and questions. So, um, first of all... Thank <laughs> you. 
Okay, so uh, language play, um, kind of polylingualism, uh, uh, intertextual signifying, uh, every day I'm hustling, every day I'm shuffling, every day I'm chapeling, um, that's what's going on there. The next one is Kardesh Tukulet and the Tenjere Taba Habas. So this is signifying on pots and hands.
Where was that? Sir? What city was that? In Istanbul, um, just in the back streets around um, Taksim Square. And the group was called Kardesh Tutudar. Um, so, the, 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 are any of you wondering what the penguins were doing there? Yeah. Uh, so, the, at, 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 the, at the moment of the um, excessively violent uh, uh, clearing of, of, the, of the protesters by the, by, by the police, the, um, the TRT, uh, rather than offering any coverage of the event, um, decided to show a um, a nature program about wildlife in Antarctica. Um, so the penguins became the kind of unwitting um, um, symbol of the of Can the, you of the, event. the name of the group? Kardesh Tukudesh. Kardesh Tukudesh. And then finally, uh, David Martello's. Piano recycle. to um, maximise time for comments and discussions or anything you, you, you'd like to say, I think I'll, I'll leave it there. Sure.